years, your brain might turn to putty. But there's still a chance to learn. We'll be your study buddies. We're going to talk about some stuff and make research cool. Welcome back to another week of Study Buddies. My name is Paul. Wow, I forgot how to do our intro. Let's let's try it. Welcome back to another episode of Study Buddies, the podcast that brings you the latest in science and psychology. And sometimes more. My name is Paula Sanchez Abreu. And my name is Taylor Collins. And we back. We back, we back, we back. And this week, we got a super cool study that Taylor has brought in for us. So Taylor, what do we have on the agenda for this week? So this week we have a 2020 study published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology called Anger Increases Susceptibility to Misinformation. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's very exciting. Yeah, so this this week we're talking about <laughs> anger, one of my favorite and most common emotions. <laughs> yeah, and it also seems to be um, very relevant to, well, you know, the beginning events of 2021. So tell us, Taylor, what's led to this study? Well, the literature on memory has historically shown us that there's um, a lot of different factors that can affect our minds and how we kind of create or are misled by false memories, such as like things like doctors, doctored photos or leading statements. Right. Like when we did um, the Seven Sins of Memory podcast episode earlier this year, we know our memory may not always be the most reliable thing in the world. Exactly. And you know how people might think that having strong emotions, like feeling really happy, angry, or scared, would make people more likely to remember something? Yeah. Well, it turns out that how our emotions affect our memory is a bit more complicated than that. And that's exactly what this study is looking to explore, but particularly in the context of the emotion of anger. Great. So what did this study look to explore in regards to anger? So this study wanted to explore how anger impacts misinformation acceptance. So basically like how we go along or believe something that's incorrect. Oh, kind of like, um, I don't know, all of QAnon. Ah, yes. The, uh, the alternative <laughs> facts. Yes. Right. <laughs> so previous research has shown that anger, quote, impacts attention and memory by enhancing goal-relevant information processing and increases reliance on relatively simple cognitive processes, such as increased stereotype and script use, end quote. So Mm. basically what they're saying is anger might make us more likely to pay attention to what's important for our goal right then. And then we end up relying on our kind of mental instincts to help us respond more quickly. But as far as anger relating to memory and false information, most other studies uh, were conducted using like word association lists. Oh, so these would be studies like uh, with lists of words uh, like tree, flower, dirt, grow, etc. And then they would test for like memory and recall. Does that sound right? Right, which the authors think might miss a lot of the interpersonal aspects of anger, like kind of having other people involved and Mm. kind of 
misinformation acceptance as a whole. So this study was really trying to get a better look at anger in a more complex, in real world way. Okay, so how did they do that? Well, they used a more, quote, ecologically valid three-phase information paradigm, which basically means they, one, expose subjects to a complex event. Which is like a little bit more than a list of words. <laughs> right. Something a little bit more intricate than that. And then two, they had post-event input from a different source that presented misinformation. So the mm. authors gave example of this being like, after the complex event, another person making like a comment about the event or some like some other source that's kind of giving you additional information. And then in the third phase, they had just a memory test to see how much the subjects remember the original complex events. So to sum up, it's just a complex event, Mm -hmm. number one, misinformation, number two, and then a test, number three. Got it. And in this study, when they gave the post-event misinformation from a different source, that like phase two, they also divided this Mm -hmm. into like two types of misinformation, schema consistent and schema irrelevant. Now, wow, big words. What is schema consistent versus schema irrelevant? Okay, so schema consistent means it's kind of like things that make sense together in your brain. So the list Mm -hmm. of words you had mentioned before, Paula, tree, flower, Mm -hmm. dirt, grow. A schema consistent word might be plant. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Well, schema irrelevant information would be things that kind of make less sense for your brain to put together. It's not really, doesn't really go with whatever else you're thinking. So for instance, tree, flower, dirt, grow, television. Okay, so kind of like how a child's mind works after they've had like red dye in their Kool-Aid. I'm sorry, I don't understand that at all. (laughs) I don't know what what that means. You know, they like bounce all over the place. They're just like, I want to go to the doctor. Give me some popsicles. I need to pee. Like things that don't make sense together all at the same time. <laughs> cool. Schema irrelevant. Tree, flower, dirt, grow, television. <laughs> exactly. Just a little just a little out there. Okay. Um, so it doesn't have to be unbelievable, but it just doesn't necessarily go with it, right? So participants mm-hmm. are usually more likely to accept like misinformation that's consistent with their schemas, the schema consistent than the irrelevant information. Okay, that makes sense. And so the authors made the prediction that since anger tends to kind of simplify how we process things, Mm. the angry people might be less likely to notice the details in the misinformation and just be more likely to accept it. Oof, that makes sense. So tell us how did they exactly conduct the experiment well they had 97 college participants ages like 18 to 44 basically a lot of kids around like early 20s um, with 57 of them being female Mm -hmm. however 18 participants were excluded for having already seen the movie that they used in the study so they ended up with 79 participants okay yeah they had a apparently a lot of movie buffs so they used computers for all the parts of the study and started by having participants do Stroop and go no go tasks, which just check for how much participants are able to ignore irrelevant information in general. Okay. And then they have the three phases: uh, in one encoding, which is kind of like the complex event; mm-hmm. two misinformation; and then three test. In between each of the, these phases, they had a twelve-minute gap where participants were either grouped in the neutral 
group or the anger group. And so if they were grouped in the neutral group, they would be doing something like more neutral while the anger group would be doing something that would elicit anger. Okay, so the neutral group was essentially the control group in this experiment. Yeah, absolutely. Great. And so in that first encoding phase, that kind of comp- – it's just where the initial thing happens. That What they did mm-hmm. is they had participants watch an eight-minute film clip of Defending Your Life. That's a movie? It's a movie. I have not seen it. Got it. I've never even heard of it. Well, 18 <laughs> out of almost 100 people have seen it, so – Impressive. Movie buffs. So in that first uh, phase, they had these people watch an eight-minute clip of the movie, and then they had that first 12-minute gap before phase two. And so in that 12-minute gap, the they had the participants do three tasks with the experimenter. And so mm. for those that were in the neutral group, the, experimental was, the experimenter was really professional. Well, for those in the anger group, the experimenter was disorganized, dismissive, insulting, lost documents, provided only vague instructions, created unnecessary work, and interrupted the participant. Wow. Yeah, that would, uh, that would anchor me. So what's next? Yeah. So once those people were primed for clearly being angry, and uh, my guess would be very irritated uh, by this really yeah. annoying uh, experimenter, then they would move on to phase two. So the phase two was going right into the misinformation phase where they answered 40 multiple choice type questions about the film that were all structured with a subordinate clause, which (laughs) means that the questions had the format of like, when X happened, then what happened? Okay, so for example, it would be a question like, at the end of their first date, before Daniel kisses Julia goodnight, what does Julia say? Which, like, the subordinate clause would be before Daniel kisses Julia goodnight. Right. Or, like, in a question like, uh, when the gray-haired waiter with the goatee come to the table, what does he ask? And the subordinate clause in that would be with the goatee. Yeah. The subordinate clause basically means, like, a way for them to give information within the question before asking the question. Got it. And so in 20 of those 40 questions, the subordinate clause, like that when X happened, had misinformation in it. So like your example mm. of like before Daniel kisses Julia goodnight, if it was misinformation, he probably didn't kiss her goodnight, but they just put it in the question. Got it. Okay. And just another note of so so half of those had misinformation, um, but and of those 20 with misinformation, 10 of them contained either schema consistent information. So... Like, again, kind of things that would make sense with the context of what was going on or schema irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So information that might have been believable, but like really didn't have anything to do with like the, the context of what was going on. And so then after they kind of sneakily get put all this information that was uh, false in these questions, they had the next 12 mm-hmm. minute gap. And this time in that gap between phase two and phase three, those that were in the neutral emotion group wrote about a time they went to a museum, while those that were in the anger group wrote about an episode in their lives that made them angry. Which for me, honestly, would be the same thing. But (laughs) you have a very angry museum experience. I just don't. I just I hate that I have to be quiet. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So. The Peabody Museum will be hearing from you. MoMA has <laughs> some strong words coming their way. Yeah. But I love learning. Science matters. 
go on. <laughs> so and so after um, that gap, they moved right into the third phase. So lastly, participants were giving given a surprise, eighty item source test. Oh, a pop quiz. Oh yeah. So well, this one <laughs> had them read the those subordinate clauses, basically the when X happens, something else statements, mm-hmm. and have them rate whether that information in those uh, statements came from the film itself, the questions from phase two, both or neither. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I would do very terribly at this. I think so too. Participants, wow, mean. You're supposed to build me up, Paula. Come on. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I think I would do badly. <laughs> No, actually, though, this Oops. does sound really hard. I see your true colors. I know, right? It all comes out in the podcast, guys, her true feelings about me. <laughs> so participants also rated their confidence in each of these responses on a seven-point scale. And lastly, they had participants complete a scale to measure, like, their trait anger levels, like, kind of what's ingrained in their personality. Um, mm-hmm. And they had a scale to see uh, how angry people rated themselves over the last hour as a way to kind of help validate that they were able to induce this anger emotion with those uh, with those two gap periods where they tried to just basically make people angry. Make them mad. Right. <laughs> so, so after this film watching, the two gaps, the two round of subordinate clauses, they also self-rated their confidence in their answers their trait anger levels and their anger level over the last hour. So that is like a lot of data. (laughs) What did they see in that data? Yeah, so they ended up randomly assigning like 36 participants in the neutral group and 36 in the anger group after removing seven participants um, for low recognition scores. So data showed that the participants in the anger group did rate themselves higher in anger and irritability than the neutral group. And they controlled for trait anger with that other measure, and that showed no difference between the two groups. So neither, nobody in each group was, like, inherently angry. It was, like, truly they were made angry because of the exercises that the experiment made. Right. They didn't put people who had, like, a baseline, a higher level of trait anger in the anger (laughs) group. Perfect. Because that might have been, that might have construed results. Definitely. And so then they did some... Fancy statistics. Fancy oh, yeah. statistics. Uh, including like two by two ANOVAs, uh, which means analysis of variance, which is basically like a really fancy way to say they compare the variables to get us our results. Got it. And ooh, results. So what did the results of the experiment tell us about anger and info? So angry participants were more likely to incorporate misinformation from the questions into their memory of the original events than the neutral participants were. And this was true for both that schema-consistent info and the schema-irrelevant info. Wow. And they also found that anger seemed to specifically increase suggestibility of misinformation rather than just increasing, like, the amount of er memory errors we made in general. Mm -hmm. So... Like, those in the anger group didn't have impaired memory for events that actually happened, but did have impaired ability to dismiss misinformation that was suggested to them. They said that this finding is, quote, consistent with an approach-oriented bias to accept information as fact, quote, Mm. which happens during anger to really streamline the thought process uh, to get us to, like, act now, quick, 
go. Like it just kind of makes everything like rapid fire, like, like amygdala let's... firing, like rah, you must right. Fix. Let's get things done. So mm. anger kind of elicits that. So it kind of makes sense to that approach. Mm. And interestingly enough, participants in the anger group were also more confident in the correctness of their answers than were the neutral group. So even though they were more likely to include misinformation, they were like, yes, I did it right. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, and it's it, it, that's a really interesting phenomenon, too, because usually um, people's confidence actually tends to go up with their accuracy. So confidence and accuracy are positively associated. Mm-hmm. However, they found like that there was this really interesting effect where with angry participants, their confidence increased as their accuracy decreased. Wow. Well, with neutral participants, it held true. Like their confidence increased as their accuracy increased. That's another example in the world of how emotions can screw you. Oh, yeah. And so lastly, they looked at response time as well, and they found that the angry group also answered questions like faster than the neutral group did. So... Ultimately, can you remind us what predictions the authors made about the emotion of anger influencing misinformation? Yeah, the authors found evidence for all three of their predictions about the anger group, which I'll give to you and then explain a little bit. So the first one was reduced skepticism, which is associated with anger, would increase susceptibility to post-event misinformation. So that basically means like you you're not really looking at the details as much, so you're more likely to just accept false info that's presented to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second prediction they had was that disinhibition, which is also associated with anger, would be manifested as increased confidence. And so we saw that happen when the people who are in the angry group really were more confident in their answers when they really didn't have a reason to be more confident. Mm -hmm. And the last one was... More streamlined cognition, which is also associated with anger, would lead to faster responding, which we saw with those, like, faster response times. Okay. And then what were the limitations of this study? After all of these amazing results, what would we say were the limitations of this study? So one limitation of this study would be sample size. Uh, As the study, study ultimately only had usable data from 72 of the 96 participants. Mm. Uh, And there's a, there is a note in the study that says the study needed 75 participants to detect an effect um, when examining the data against other similar studies. So I think really just having a larger sample size would have really helped with the results and what they, what they're saying. Yeah. Well, hopefully they can do this again with a larger sample size because it's really fascinating. My only other right. thought was that maybe if you're like a super nice person, you wouldn't have gotten like as angry at that disorganized slash rude researcher as much. Maybe that's an optimistic view of other people's potential patients, though. But I don't know. Right. What do you think? Like me, maybe you walked in that day and just had a lot of gratitude for everyone. So you were just like, oh, yeah, yes. like you did your meditations that morning. And it's fine that this researcher is giving me extra work. I'm great. I'm so <laughs> copacetic. Yeah. Well, we actually heard from Dr. Greenstein about this particular limitation that we're talking about. And here's what he had to say about whether or not people got angry enough with this study. Hello, I'm Michael Greenstein, and I'm an assistant professor at Framingham State University. I'm a psychologist in the psychology and philosophy department, and my primary research focus is in examining how emotion, usually anger, impacts memory and decision making. There are some important limitations to this work. The first is that 
for ethical reasons, there are limits to how angry you can make somebody in a laboratory. So, while I studied anger, I wasn't studying extreme anger. That's not to say my study didn't make people angry. We actually had some participants leave early due to be made too angry by the study. But it's possible that people feeling extreme anger may respond differently than those who were in our study. If I had to guess, I would say that extreme anger would make the effect stronger, but it's an empirical question. Wow, it is so cool to hear that people actually walked out of the study. So it sounds like people did get pretty angry. And here's what else Dr. Greenstein had to say about limitations and what those limitations might mean for future studies. The other notable limitation is also related to one of the things I plan on studying next. We made people angry before presenting the post-event information and before testing people on their memory. This means we don't know when anger is affecting memory. This somewhat limited our interpretation of the results. One of my next steps is going to be testing anger at each point of time separately. It's so cool to hear what the next steps in this research is going to be to address these limitations. But overall, this was a well-done experimental study that indicated some statistically significant results. Yeah, it's super exciting. Thank you so much for bringing this in, Taylor. We also asked Michael what the most salient points of this research were that he wanted people to take away. And so here was what he had to say about that. There are two things people should take away from my study. The first is not original to my study, but it's worth repeating. And that's that memory does not work like a video camera. A video camera records exactly what you pointed at and nothing else. And then when you review the recording from a video camera, you see the same thing over and over, no matter how many times you view that recording. Human memory is way more sophisticated than a video camera. Instead of simply recording what you see, you enter into events with knowledge that can color your interpretations and your experiences as they're happening. And afterwards, you might learn post-event information that can change your interpretations of the experience. You compile all of this information together into one seemingly coherent memory. Also, if you talk with someone about your memory, then subtleties of that conversation may lead to your describing things in a slightly different way, which can impact how you remember it as well. So it's possible that each time you remember an event, you might remember it in a slightly different way than you had in the past. The original contribution of my work is related to how memory is altered by post-event information when someone is angry. Anger seems to have no impact on memory related to true post-event information, but anger makes people more susceptible to false post-event suggestions. Also, anger makes people more confident in their memory. This creates a unique issue. Usually, people who are making more memory errors are less confident in their memory but angry people are making more memory errors while still being very confident. This means that for someone who is angry, their confidence is a particularly poor predictor of their accuracy. These are all super great points to take home. And if you have any further questions about memory, you can go ahead and listen back to our episode, The Seven Sins of Memory, where we talk about a little bit of what Dr. Greenstein was talking about with memory being kind of just flawed in general. And thank you again to Dr. Greenstein and to Taylor for bringing in this amazing study. Wow. Yeah. In the second or third, rather the third week of January in a really strange, um, strange time in the United States of America. It'll be an interesting passing notes. Absolutely. I cannot wait until passing notes. Uh, thanks again, Michael, for (laughs) throwing in your perspective. We really appreciate it. And, Uh, We appreciate all you guys for tuning in. 
Thank you so much, my friends. We will see you next week for another episode of Study Buddies. See you next Tuesday. Study Buddies was created by Paula Sanchez Abreu and Taylor Collins. Our graphic design was done by Monica Ray Summers Gonzalez, and our intro song was composed by singer-songwriter Caught In Between. You can follow Study Buddies on Instagram at studybuddies.com and email the show at studybuddiespodcast at gmail.com.